Well, if I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And we're wrapping up today a series that we've called Burning Questions. All of the questions were designed to be asked of God, but some of you decided that you wanted to ask me specific questions. And so I'm going to wrap through a whole bunch of these because we can. Okay. So one question was, hey, why do you make fun of Canadians? All right. And the answer is because they're funny and I'm a Canadian. And so that makes it legal. Okay. All right. Second question, who is your boss? That's a great question. Okay. I answer to Jesus, but I also answer to the elders, deacons, and deaconesses that compile, uh, compile something called the church council. So I do have a boss and, and they do their best to try and keep me in line and you can pray for them because that's no small task. Okay. Another question that I got asked is why were you in Fresno, California last week? Okay, Fresno's not really known as a destination, you know, where like you just, you don't just go to, yeah, someone said amen, right? You don't just go to Fresno because you can, you go there because you have something to do. Now, I was actually there taking my last master's class. The seminary that I've been going to sent me a letter in January and said, we're closing our doors on June the 2nd. And if you don't graduate by then, you lose everything you've worked on in the last seven years. So I went down and took my last urban immersion class in Fresno, California. I spent a week in a little area called the Devil's Triangle. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a little bit. And uh, you can pray for me because on top of Easter and everything else, I've got to finish a master's thesis and all of the work with this class so I can get a little piece of paper. I'm not sure how that works, but that's the deal, okay? Another question was, hey, why don't you publish your email on the website? That's a good question. Let me tell you why. There was a time when uh, my email box became completely overwhelming. Getting several hundred emails, not sometimes in a week, but in a matter of days, got to be completely overwhelming. I have a personal conviction that keyboard counseling is not responsible. And and so um, I'm not trying to keep it a secret. I'm just making it so that people have to figure it out. And I'll give you a clue. My email's not any different than anybody else on staff at Christ the King. And if you can't figure that out, I don't want to talk to you anyway. Okay, so um, another question. Why did God make slugs? That was a good question. My answer is to remind you that your life ain't so bad. Okay, all right? And another question was, how do you keep from being discouraged? And I didn't really think I have been very discouraged, but... I started thinking about an answer to that, and I think a lot of people face discouragement, and I would answer it this way. You keep from being discouraged by looking for God in the cracks of your life and choosing to be a part of a solution instead of just being a part of the problem. I think that can go an awful long way. We're going to finish up with three last questions this week, three burning questions that people submitted. Some of them scared me, some of them fascinated me, and some of them just kind of, they were there and they just begged to be answered. Someone asked this question, what is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in 140 characters or less? There's a challenge right there, okay? I got it down to 20 characters, all right? This is my answer to what the gospel, the message of Jesus is in 20 characters or less. It's John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. Let me explain it. John 3, 16, most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the vertical explanation of the message of Christianity, that God so desperately loved us that he offered the best he had in the form of his son to pay a debt of sin that we couldn't pay on our own so that we could receive the gift of eternal life. Here's the beauty of Christianity. God did all the work. God did all the giving. God did all the saving. And everything that we do is 
in response to that incredible gift. But that's not it. That's the vertical part. But I want to challenge you to do something. Whenever you quote John 3.16, don't forget to add 1 John 3.16 to it. John 3.16 is the vertical. 1 John 3.16 is the horizontal. That verse says this. This is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Gospel's got two elements. The good news is that God has done all of the work in saving us, but then we get an opportunity to participate in him and love those who are just like we were, who were far from God, which means this. We're called to respond to God's love exactly the same way God's love responded to us, which means this. You are called to love people you don't like. You are called to love people who are different from you. You are called to love people who stand for something that you adamantly oppose. You are still called to love them because that's exactly what God did for you and me. It's the beauty of Easter. Here's another question. This one kept me awake for a couple of nights. Thank you very much. The question was, what do you think is the most misunderstood part of God's character? My answer was his justice. I think people forget that God's a God of justice as well as a God of love. Now, I love the God of love part. But if you forget the, other, if you forget the, the justice part of God's love and his heart, then, then really you kind of separate out because his justice is what makes his love so amazing. I'm going to read to you a, ch- a chunk of Isaiah chapter 65, okay? This should kind of press you back in your seat just a little bit because this is God with no filter just speaking to people. He says this, I revealed myself to those who didn't ask for me. I was found by those who didn't seek me. To a nation that didn't call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long, I've held out my hands to obstinate people who walk in ways that are not good, pursuing their own imaginations. A people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of unclean meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, I'm too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. See, it stands written before me. I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your fathers, says the Lord. It doesn't sound very loving, does it? That's God's justice there. He says, you you, you want to talk about the real facts? Here's the real facts. I kept showing up, but you were too busy. I kept calling to you, but you pretended not to notice. I I kept saying, "Here, here am I. Here I am. I'm right in front of you. You kept saying, where in the world is God? I kept extending a hand, but you slapped it away. I tried to love you, but you kept walking away. I showed you how much I loved you by sacrificing my own son, and you provoked me to my face. You made decisions and you got nose to nose with me and you basically said, I know better than you. I'm a bigger God than you are. I will run my own life. I don't need you at all. I called you to purity. You slept with your girlfriend. I called you to a life of purpose. You pursued your own thing. I called you to lay down your life and you kept scrambling up the corporate ladder. I kept offering you a life and you decided instead to sit in a graveyard eating garbage and saying, keep away from me. I'm too sacred. I'm my own God and I don't need you. That was fighting words, right? That's scary stuff. 
And this is what God says. At some point, my love is what has made me patient. And I'm going to keep waiting and waiting, but at some point, my justice is going to close that door. And your window of opportunity will be gone. I mean, God says, I love you enough to wait, but there is going to come an end to my patience, and that's where God's justice takes over. I mean, I love the loving part of Jesus, the warm, fuzzy side of Jesus, the let's just sit together and have a moment side of Jesus, but the reality is the Bible says His justice at some point will close that window of opportunity. Here's what I can tell you as my friends and my faith family. Somewhere down the road, we're either going to meet God in His grace or in His justice. My prayer is that you will choose to meet Him in His grace. Here was another question. I like this one because I had a whole bunch of people ask this question. What, 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 does God, what does God want from me? And they're kind of implying something with it. You know, God wants my fun. God wants my time. God wants all my friends that like to live on the edge. I mean, that's what God wants to take all the good stuff. And I'm just going to have to suffer through life as a Christian. Well, one brave person flipped that whole thing over and they asked this question. They said, what does God want for me? I thought, that's a good question. Here's how I'd answer it. Just my thoughts. I think this is what God wants for you. I think God wants you to start with the ending. Let me unpack that just a little bit. This will be hard for you, some of you to believe, but my wife and I, we fight, okay? Well, you know, we're like any other normal married couple. We have those moments where we just kind of get into it with each other and we struggle back and forth. And, and, but here's the coolest thing. At the end of every argument we've had for the last 24 years, it's always ended up in the same place with this, these three words, I love you. I mean, after we've reconciled and put it all back together again, we've ended up with, I love you. If, that, you know, if we hadn't reconciled it to that point, we prob- I probably would not be standing up here today and Laurel wouldn't be coming to church at 1145 because we'd have something else we would need to talk about, right? But so far, all of the arguments have ended up in, this, in that particular place. So here's the question. What if you started with the ending? What if when you felt yourself ramping into one of those disagreements, what if one of you started with the ending and said, I love you? Some of you are like, I tried that. Didn't go so well for me, right? <laughs> you know? But what if, well, what if it's just as it was beginning to ramp up, we began to think along the, the, the terms of, I married you. I'm head over heels in love with you. I'm going to start with that. I mean, t- try this sometime, husbands. Well, when, you're, when you can feel it and you know when it's coming, right? It's right on the edge. Try looking at your wife and saying, you know what? You're kind of cute when you're angry. <laughs> and then call me and tell me how that goes for you, okay? <laughs> That'd be a good sermon illustration. All right, so... Um, But what if we started with the ending and worked our way backwards? One of my favorite philosophers with a guitar is a guy by the name of David Wilcox. And he wrote these words. He goes, so many things would go better by starting with the ending. I mean, if you did your life starting the other direction and start with the ending, you know, you'd just die first and get it out of the way. And then you'd be able to enjoy your retirement while you were young, plenty of money and travel, whatever you love. After a while, you'd get bored with that and you'd want to be useful, so you want to give something back and then it would probably be time to go to work. At the first day of work, it's awesome because they give you a gold watch. 
They show you to a corner office and you're thinking, man, this is cool. The money's even better than the retirement benefits were. And you do that for a little while and, 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 and you begin to feel like, like maybe you want to connect a little bit more with people. So you graduate to a service-oriented type of job and you start to work at Dairy Queen. Ice cream and people. But even that's not good enough for you. So you begin to push into something different and you switch jobs and eventually you find your true calling at the pinnacle of your career working at summer camp. And it's good. But now you you see you're ready to give up on work because money's not that important to you anymore and you're older and wiser now and so it's probably time to go to college. You get your money's worth now because you actually have some good questions to ask and you graduate from that and now you're ready for high school and as you go through your next 12 years of education, you find yourself learning simpler and simpler things like sharing and being friends and cooperation until you're learning language itself. And then you realize anything really worth saying kind of slips past language, so you just quit talking altogether. It's not a big deal because you really don't have much to say. You're taking yourself a whole lot lighter because the reality is you are a whole lot lighter. And then when you decide this whole life is just too much of a burden, you make the decision to go out as just a glimmer in somebody's eye. You see, that's a life well lived. You just die first and get it out of the way. Does that make sense? Does anybody know how the end of the book goes when you read your Bible? I'll tell you how it goes. It ends with one solitary word, amen. So be it. It ends up with every person that's ever been created on a knee in front of God, either meeting Him in His grace or His justice. So what if we started there? What if we took a knee on purpose, intentionally, before the God who created this season of Easter and we just placed ourselves down? Revelation 22, the last couple of verses say this, the, spride and the, the, or the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and whoever's thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And then John warns people about adding or taking anything away from the Bible. And then the verses, verse 20 says this, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So what if we started there? What if we started with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? What if, what if we just put the church and Jesus together and, and we took it as our, our highest calling to just hand out living water to anybody that was thirsty? Then what if we started and ended with the Bible and started and ended with worshiping God? What if we started with Jesus in his fullness and his completeness and his strength? What if we just died to ourselves and got it out of the way? Paul told us to do that in Romans 12, right? Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is what God wants for you, to die first, to start with the ending, and secondly, to live free. He wants you to live cross-culturally, counter culturally. I mean, here's a novel thought. As we enter into Easter, take it as your, as your divine job description to live counterculturally, buck the trend, and be a rebel. Do everything in the opposite direction of what the world tells you to do. Do you know what that means? That means this is how you are to be a rebellious 
follower of God. Here's what you're supposed to do. Get a job, pay your taxes, stay clean, get married, raise great kids, love God, and actually do what the Bible says. If you do that, you're just going to be a bunch of Bible-thumping freaks. And that's exactly what God wants for you. To do the opposite of what everybody else is doing. That's what he did. Jesus started with the ending. Let's keep moving and we're going to be here a long time. Number two. What does God want for you? He wants you to move when the Spirit says move. I just shudder to think of what would happen to Whatcom County if God's people started following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And every time he said, hey, go and talk to that person, that we actually did it. This is a favorite quote from, a, from my favorite book outside of the Bible. It was written by a 16th century monk. He talked about what it's like to, to fully surrender yourself so when the Holy Spirit tells you to do something, your instant response is, yes, God. He wrote this, the only condition necessary for this state of self-surrender is the present moment in which the soul is light as a feather, as fluid as water, as innocent as a child, responded to every moment of grace like a floating balloon. Such souls are like molten metal filling whatever vessel God chooses to pour them into. So if you know my story, you know I'm a bit of a recovering Baptist, and uh, that'll be funny to some of you and not funny to anybody else. So this being directed by the Spirit is something that, that, that really has only kicked in in kind of the last 10 years of my life, and, and yet I still find myself resisting that. I know if I ask for a show of hands, not, you guys would be way too holy to admit to that, but, but I, have you ever had one of those moments when God tells you to go to do something and your response is, uh-uh, <laughs> are you kidding me? Not a chance. And you find yourself, you know, with His hand on your back and you're kind of like, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. I was in Fresno, California, in the Devil's Triangle. That's what they call it. It was a neighborhood that about 20 years ago had the highest concentration of crime, poverty, and illiteracy in the entire country. Until four couples decided that God told them to move into the Devil's Triangle in Fresno, California, and buy derelict houses and fix them up and plant gardens. You know who does that? Crazy Jesus people. That's who does that kind of thing. So they did. They moved into this neighborhood and they started rebuilding houses and planting gardens and letting their kids go to those public schools and and they stood out like sore thumbs and everybody told them they were crazy. Now, nobody thinks they're crazy. The Devil's Triangle is not called the Devil's Triangle anymore. It's called the Lowell Neighborhood and it has one of the lowest crime rates one of the lowest poverty rates in all of the area because four Christian couples just decided to go and do what God told them to do. Well, I got up one morning and they took us on a walking tour of all of the areas that we were, that they had affected. And we were noticing just how wonderful this little neighborhood had become as it was completely transformed. But there are some areas out on the edges that are still a little sketchy. And and so I'm in Fresno, California, and we're standing beside this alleyway And I see a little guy coming towards me, pushing a shopping cart faster than I've ever seen a shopping cart be pushed ever. And he's a little dude. 
And he's kind of dressed in raggedy clothes, and he's got tin cans all over there. And, and he's just motoring. I mean, he's just pushing right through the, 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 this, this kind of garbage-strewn alleyway. And, and God says, go talk to him. And I'm like, nope. Aren't you proud of your pastor? You know, <laughs> way to go, Grant. <laughs> way to be disobedient. That's good, right? I'm like, oh, no, no. I'm tired. I'm an introvert. I've been with 14 other extroverts. I mean, this has been like borderline hell for me over the last couple of... I, don't, I ran out of words at 11 o'clock in the morning. I do not want to talk to anybody, especially a skinny little dude pushing a shopping cart. It's one of these moments, though. It's just like, no. So finally, it's just like, okay, Whatever. And I've got my cute little lines ready, you know, hi, my name's Grant, I'm a visiting pastor, just came to check out your neighborhood, so good to see you. I mean, I got the whole thing prepared. All I got out of my mouth was hi. Stop the cart. Hi there, my name's Morton. I'm a follower of the Most High God. This morning in my quiet time, I was reading Hebrews chapter 3. Have you ever read Hebrews chapter 3? That is a beautiful piece of scripture. But young man, you look very burdened to me today. How can I pray for you? What? God bless you. I wasn't the helper, I was the target. <laughs> you know what Morton was doing? Hebrews, or sorry, Galatians chapter 5. Since we live by the Spirit, Let's keep in step with the Spirit. Apparently, the Spirit walks very fast in alleyways in Fresno. <laughs> I know you, you heard the invitation thing, and you probably just thought, well, I really hope somebody else invites somebody to Christ the King this Easter. God already gave you a list in your brain. Whether you tried to give your list back to Him or not, that doesn't change the fact that God has a heart for those people and He wants to use you in step with the Spirit to reach them and change their eternal destiny. Here's the last little piece. What else does God want for you? I believe that He would want for you to experience some beautiful gifts. If you're married, and I'm not assuming that you are or that you're going to be, but if you are married, I believe God would want for you to have a marriage worth dying for. Whenever I do a wedding, I always come to a point right before the vows. And uh, if you've ever been in a wedding that I've done, you know this to be true. But I often will stop, and I don't even prepare the groom for it. I just kind of stop and say, okay, here's the deal. Before we do the, the vows and you get ready, I've got a question to ask you. And if you get the answer wrong, I'm leaving. And we're done, and you can keep whatever you're paying me for this gig because I don't really care. But you, you know, I, you've got one shot to answer the question. If you don't get it right, I'm out of here. And so are the rest of these people. And the reason that I'm going to ask you the question is because it's important. I want to know the answer to the question. This little girl's daddy definitely wants to hear the answer to the question. So does everybody else here. So no pressure, but here's the question. And my question is, would you die for her? And it gets real quiet, just like it did right here. I've had some great answers. I've had some father-in-laws stand up and go, I want to hear the answer to this. <laughs> Come on, punk, talk, you know? 
I've seen tears. And there have been times when I've had married couples in my office who are going through really, really difficult times. And I'll look at him and I'll say, I asked you a question once. And I'm going to ask you again. Would you die for her? Because once you said you would. I believe this is what God wants for you. If you've been placed in a marriage relationship, that you would experience that relationship as Jesus intended it to be, which means this. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. I didn't say it, God did. Secondly, I think this was what God would want for you to experience a friendship worth investing in. I've been blessed with good friends. My prayer for our church is that you would never, ever stand alone here. I got to do a, uh, a funeral this past week. A young man uh, named Axel. My wife worked with Axel. My son worked with Axel. And he passed away in a tragic accident on the Klein Road. When I got up to, uh, to talk, and I was so grateful... Uh, we had an Alzheimer's convention or a seminar kind of a deal happening here at the church. And so our good friends and family over at Cornwall said, hey, why don't you use our building? And, and you guys can do just the way, it's the way the church is supposed to work. You know, we're friends. We're friends. Bobby's my best friend. But I got up there and I saw a picture of what friendship is supposed to look like because there was about probably two to 300 young people all wearing blue plaid shirts just like Axel did. And then a young man, I'm not going to embarrass him, but his, his name is David. He got up and he took the microphone and he shared the gospel better than I ever could to his friendship group. I wonder, do you have enough friends in your life to carry your casket? You should. And if you don't, maybe it's because you've never extended it a hand. I know this is what God wants for you. A group of people that you could look to in the darkest moments of your life and they'd be there for you. By the way, David, you did a great job, dude. I also know that God would want this for you, that you would experience a purity worth sacrificing for. Especially for our young people. God wants purity for you. If you've already crossed that line, I hope you know that God's love and grace and forgiveness is there for you in that moment. But I believe God is calling His people to a higher level of purity, whether you're married, single, otherwise, that we would focus on Jesus and not settle. Another piece there that God would want this for you, that, that He would want you to have a commission worth living out. I mean, God told us to go. I think we're supposed to go. I believe God would have this for you, that you would have a trust that was worth acting on. My prayer is that as a church, we would live free from the trappings of earthly wealth, that we would understand someday it's all going to go away anyway. So why not invest in the two things that are eternal, God's Word and people? And finally, that you would experience a faith worth everything. I believe this is what God wants for you, a vibrant faith that lives above the noise of the world, a faith that scares you and challenges you and causes you to pray the impossible and that your response every time he touches you is simply to say, yes, God. Yes, God. So we're getting ready to come to Easter. You know, believe it or not, we kind of plan these things out so sequentially they make sense. Our, our Easter series this year is called Victorious. Victorious. 
You see, there's a, a little verse in Scripture that's captivated me for the last couple of months. I can't get it out of my brain. God asks a burning question of death. He says, death, what happened to your victory? Where'd your stinger go, death? And then he makes this statement, death has been swallowed up in victory. You see, here's the strange thing. On Palm Sunday, people thought that was the win. It wasn't the win. On Good Friday, they thought that was the loss. It wasn't the loss. On Easter Sunday morning... Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit all got together, grabbed death by the throat, and said, you're not so bad. You're not so tough. We don't have to be afraid of you. You've been defeated once and for all. If that's the best you got, you should have brought more. And at Easter, we're going to celebrate the fact that our God, the God of justice, the God of the gospel... The God who wants so much for us beat death once and for all and was victorious. I hope and pray you'll come and join me. Let's pray. Father God, we love you today. I thank you for these godly people who actually gave up vitamin D to come inside this room. I thank you that that they made a decision to worship the sun in here before enjoying the sun out there. Lord, thank you that you love to handle our questions. You're not afraid or intimidated by any of them. I pray that we would have the courage to ask. Lord, now as we turn our attention towards the cross, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter weekend, Lord, I pray that you would give us the discipline we're going to need to keep our focus in the right place. Jesus, thank you for loving us, for forgiving us and keeping us close when we hurt. Lord, I pray for those who are stuck in their questions today. I pray that they would rest easy in your grace, knowing that you are patient. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for small men in alleys in Fresno who teach us just how meticulous and gracious and loving you are. And we pray these things in your precious name. And the family of Christ the King agreed together and said, Amen. Amen.